It is really a privilege to be here. Jimmy, thank you for that very generous and warm welcome. As I begin, I, I just simply want to say thank you. Um, a few of you were in the room almost 40 years ago at La Vista Women's Club when I was baptized. And you took a vow, and you kept that vow. Some of you changed my diapers. Um, you, you fed me meals. You taught me Sunday school. At least a couple of you were mentors and volunteers in the youth group when I was in middle school and high school, which is worth at least a few extra jewels in your crown in heaven that you put up with me back then. Um, you pray for me. Still, you pray for me and my family as we minister in New York City, and I am extremely grateful because in, in all of that, what you have taught me is that following Jesus is not only reasonable, but it's beautiful. And so I thank you for that. Um, I'm also really excited to begin this new series on evangelism. I think it's best that I go first so Jimmy and the other pastors have a few weeks to kind of clean up whatever mess it is that I make this morning. But, but what I understand to be at the very heart of the series is this. How might your pickleball buddies go from being indifferent to Christianity to joyful followers of Jesus? How, how might God be pleased to use you to bring the person across the dinner table from you or across the street or across the office or across homeroom from you? How might God be pleased to use, that, to use you to bring that person from mockery of Christianity to feasting with Jesus at his table? That's what's at the heart of what In Town is going to be wrestling with for the next few weeks. And the verses that we're about to read uh, from the book of First Peter were written to several communities of Christians who were wrestling with the same questions, maybe minus the pickleball one. They were, they were looking around at their neighbors, at their friends, their coworkers, their family members, the people whose lives were regularly collided with their own, the people who had no real interest in following Jesus, and they were asking, what do we do? What do we do? How, how might we play a role in our neighbors coming to know and love Jesus? Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're one of those neighbors. You're here exploring, maybe tentatively moving toward Jesus for the first time in your life. And you're not really sure if the stuff that we talk about in here is true or worth it. Or perhaps you're here and you're moving away from Jesus. You're here out of habit. You're here because someone in your life has dragged you here. And I hope, um, wherever you're coming from, that what you hear this morning and in the coming weeks honors your experience and that it gives you a compelling vision for the goodness and the glory of Jesus. So no matter where you're coming from, we thought it would be helpful to begin In Town's conversation on evangelism where Peter begins his conversation. And where he begins is by showing us what resources we have in Christ to empower us and inviting others to come to know him. So um, we're going to read about those resources together now. Our scripture reading this morning is 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, 
for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Since this is God's word and not my own, I'm going to pray for us and ask for his help. Father, we do ask for your help. There is a wide spectrum of belief in this room, a wide spectrum of comfort with the idea of evangelism. Some of us are enthusiastic about it. Some of us are not even sure that it's biblical or loving to ask someone to change what they believe. So, Holy Spirit, would you come and do what only you can do? Would you give us ears to hear the good news, eyes to see the goodness of Jesus, and hearts that are soft? that are ready to receive it, to receive him. Amen. So there are three resources in this text, three gifts from Jesus that I want to call our attention to this morning that, that empower us in inviting others to know Jesus. And they are a new posture, a new identity, and a new hope. A new posture, a new identity, and a new hope. Just as a heads up, we are going to linger on the first point a little longer than the second and the third. So if you worried that somebody forgot to tell the guest preacher what time lunch is supposed to be, don't worry. We're going to, the, the second two will go more quickly than the first one. So um, let's start the, a new posture. In verse one, uh, Peter calls the people that he's writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion. Or maybe if you're reading in another translation, I think in the NIV, they're called strangers in the world. And he's opening his letter to these people by calling them strange. That, that Greek word there in, um, in the text means outcast or foreigner. By the way, just saying, hearing Jimmy go, the, the answer earlier, the answer is because language, how, how language works. I was back in first semester Greek class from whenever that was. That was like a whole semester of Jimmy going, this is not how language works. So it was great. It was great. Thank you, Jimmy. Um, I totally lost my train of thought. What were we talking about? Oh, yeah, okay. So the Greek word means outcast or foreigner. But what's interesting about this is that Peter is not writing to people who are living in a foreign land. Peter is writing to people who are living in these provinces that are named here in this text that are uh, little provinces kind of going in a circle around Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And, and that's where they've always lived. 
They're born and raised in, in these provinces. They've always lived there. So they are living in their native land, and yet he still calls them strangers and exiles. And the reason is because they are Christians. The reason is because they're Christians, and because they have given their deepest allegiance to Jesus, it has made them strange. It's not yet illegal to be a Christian where they are, but their Christian faith has put them on the outside. It's put them on the margins. They are social outcasts, and they're excluded because of their commitment to Jesus. They are noticeably strange to their neighbors, and Peter is naming this reality, and in fact, he is normalizing it for the Christian. Because as the rest of the book, the letter of 1 Peter unfolds, his primary paradigm for the Christian life is exile. It's exile, not influence. It's strangeness rather than relevance. Here's why this is such an important idea, I think, for us to grasp. We are living in what pastor and theologian Mark Sayers calls a gray zone. And a gray zone is a hinge in history. It's a pivot point in one, where one era is ending and another era is emerging. And gray zones tend to be characterized by major cultural upheaval. Think like the fall of the Roman Empire or the Protestant Reformation, where long-established institutions are disrupted and sometimes overturned. Long-accepted assumptions about the shape of reality are deconstructed to make way for new beliefs. The gray zone is a place of broad cultural upheaval and disorientation. And I'm wondering if any of that sounds familiar. Because there is a growing consensus across Western culture that we are in a gray zone right now, that we are living through a shift from Christendom to post-Christendom. We are living through a, a shift from a time when Judeo-Christian ideas about transcendence, about truth, about personhood, about meaning, ideas that have shaped the Western cultural imagination for centuries, those ideas are being pushed to the margin. And new ideas about the shape of reality are beginning to animate our culture. So in the post-Christian culture, what we have is the fruit of Christianity without the root. We have, we have the values of the kingdom without the king. So here's what I mean by that. Um, in, in Western culture, we cherish a lot of ideas that I think actually grow out of Christianity. So something like the dignity of the individual or the importance of freedom and equality and justice or the beauty of compassion. These are all things that are normal in Western culture. They're assumed realities in Western culture, but they are assumed realities because of the influence of Christianity, because of the influence of the early church on Western culture, primarily through their sacrificial service towards their neighbors and their communities from the margin. But in our culture, we pursue these kingdom ideas apart from the king himself, apart from King Jesus, because in a post-Christian world, Jesus is not king. I am. In a post-Christian world, I answer to one voice and one voice only, and that is my own voice. At the center of these new beliefs about the shape of reality is this. I am my own. I belong to myself and no one else. There is nothing that transcends the authority of my inner voice. This is perhaps the animating force beneath Western culture right now. So while we hold on to ideas 
and cherish ideas that emerged out of a Christian worldview, we hold them in a way that is not in service to King Jesus, but is in service to King me. And in this world where the self and its expression and its fulfillment are king, Christianity is at best irrelevant and nonsensical. And at worst, it's oppressive because why would you willingly assent to anything that threatens to dethrone you and your pursuit of your own fulfillment? So we are weird. We're strange. Our allegiance to King Jesus makes us so. It puts us at the margins of society because it puts us at odds with the most cherished belief that we are our own and we belong to ourselves. So even things like the spiritual stirring that's happening at Asbury College in Kentucky, which I think is wonderful and we should celebrate it, it's still happening within a broader culture that is perfectly content to sneer at or be indifferent to what God is doing at Asbury College in Kentucky. Maybe this is all incredibly discouraging to you. Maybe, like myself, you grew up in a white evangelical bubble where Christianity was normal and respectable and it deserved a key voice in the marketplace of ideas. And so the idea that Christians should expect to be on the sidelines is not really in your playbook for the Christian life. Um, But if you grew up outside the United States or outside the white evangelical bubble in the United States, maybe you grew up in a majority black church or a majority immigrant church here in the United States, my guess is that you understand what Peter is talking about much more than I do. This this idea, the the discomfort of living at the margins is much more intuitive to you, and I have a lot to learn from you. And, And the reason that it is so important that I learn from you is because if we do not learn to embrace our strangeness, to live life from the margins, we will be tempted to resolve the tension of living at the margin in some destructive ways. One of the ways that we will be tempted to resolve this tension um, is by dominating. We will try to, to force our beliefs on others. We will resolve the discomfort and the costliness of living in the gray zone by trying to win the culture war, but this is not the way of Jesus. Jesus' victory was not through domination, but by allowing himself to be dominated. Jesus' victory, his triumph, was not one of brute force, but was one of laying down his own life. We may be tempted to resolve the discomfort and the costliness of living at the margins by withdrawing, by retreating into bubbles of people who believe and think and act and look just like we do. Those are the only people we have meaningful relationships with. That resolves the tension if we never have meaningful interaction with the world around us. But that also is not the way of Jesus because Jesus' response to our rejection of him was not for him to withdraw. It was for him to take on flesh, for him to move towards us in love. Or we may be tempted to resolve the tensions of the gray zone by conforming. Then when the costliness of life in a world that does not believe as we do, the one way to resolve that tension is just to assimilate our values and our practices to that of the world. And then the tension is gone. But this also is not the way of Jesus. Because he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. 
So we must not assume a posture of domination or withdrawal or conformity. I think we need to take Peter at his word here. We need to to take on and learn to embody what Pastor Abe Cho in New York City has called a spirituality of the margins. I think this is our posture. And in that posture, I think there is an invitation for us. There is an invitation, firstly, to freedom. There's enormous freedom in embracing our strangeness when you do not expect to be understood or even respected by those who believe differently than you, it's much easier to be open with them about your Christian faith and about Jesus. Because what do you have to lose? They already think you're weird. So it's much easier to be free and open about the most important thing in your life. So there's an invitation to freedom, but there's also an invitation to patience. Because if what we believe, if what Christians believe is fundamentally at odds, with what the world believes about the shape of reality, then it is going to take a while for someone to move from thinking that that, that faith in Jesus is irrelevant or oppressive to thinking that, oh, yeah, that's like plausible, to actually desiring that. That journey is going to take a while, and it's going to take more than just you. Evangelism is a group project. We get to do this together. Your neighbors need to meet a lot of your, they need to meet other in-towners. You need to be generous with your hospitality. Pray fervently for them. Listen well. Get to know their stories and what makes them tick. And, And in all this, be patient. Because as you, as a community, humbly embody the Christian faith, um, it will happen. People will see that the gospel is not only plausible, but beautiful and desirable. But even still, I I don't like the gray zone. I don't like the margin. I like being liked. I like being respected. But here's the good news. Embracing a posture of the margins is not a threat to evangelism. It is fuel for it. It's not a threat. If you look at where the gospel is booming today around the world, it is not booming in places where Christianity and Christian ideas have dominance. It is in places where Christianity is being dominated. In Iran, a place where Christians are pushed to the very far edge of society's margin, faith in Jesus is rapidly growing. Forty years ago in Iran, there were 500 Muslim background Christians, 500 in the entire country. Today, there are almost a million. In fact, in the last 20 years, more Iranians have become Christians than in the previous 13 centuries combined. That is incredible. So to embrace life as strangers and exiles, to aim ourselves at patient and humble evangelism from the sidelines without expectation of power or influence or even respect, this is not a threat to the gospel going forth. It's fuel for it. But let's not sugarcoat this. This is hard. This is costly. Peter even says, you will be grieved for a little while by various trials. So when they come, how will you be sustained? How will you be sustained? Peter says, we don't just get this new posture. 
we also get a new identity. By the way, you, you did it. You made it through. We did it the first point. We're on to point number two. We don't just get this new posture. We also get a new identity. This is what Peter is talking about in verse three. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. Born again. What does that mean? Well, we, we sometimes um, can think of being born again as a particular kind of religious experience like a, a dramatic and cathartic experience, but that's not really what the Bible means by that idea. The term born again simply means to be made new, to have new spiritual life implanted and, and growing out of you. And it's the reality for every, every Christian. It's not just like for some special class of Christians. It's the reality for every single Christian. See, God is at work in the world, making all things new. He's promised to transform this world that is positively groaning with injustice and evil into a world where there is no more sorrow and there is no more sickness and there is no more sin and there is no more death. And to be born again means to have that future renewal begun in you now. That's what it means to be born again. The Apostle Paul says that the Christian is a new creation. You have a completely new identity. God's own renewing life has been placed at the very core of your being. And it's a new answer to the question, who are you? Um, we have three kids, as, as Jimmy mentioned earlier. One of them came with me this weekend. Um, we have a son who's in middle school and two who are in elementary school. And every day on the way to school, I go through this little liturgy with our kids. Now they kind of roll their eyes at it, but we still do it because I'm a dad and that's what I'm supposed to do, right? I make my children's eyes roll. Um, and... Uh, and so what we do is I ask them one at a time, who are you? And I do this because we live in a culture that encourages them in a million little ways all day long to believe that they are their own and they belong to themselves. And that the only voice that matters is their own. And it's telling them to constantly be discovering and constructing their identity for themselves. But that is actually an exhausting and a dehumanizing way to live. Because a stable, life-giving identity can never be discovered or achieved from within. It has to be received as a gift from the outside. And so I ask them, who are you? And they answer, I am Elliot. I am Zoe. I am Margaret. I am wonderfully made by God. I am a forgiven sinner, baptized and beloved by him, and he knows my name. And then I say, that's such good news. Remember who you are today. And we do this every day, and every day they roll their eyes. But, but we do this because I want them to be rooted in who they really are. They are not their failures. They are not their successes. They are not what some voice inside them tells them to be. They are God's, and he loves them. And Peter takes the time to write this down, that you are born again because he wants you to have the same experience and the same understanding of yourself. He wants you to be rooted in who you are in Christ, to know that at your core is the stability and the vitality of God's own life being poured into you, born again. That is who you are. So when you feel your strangeness amongst your neighbors, you can know that you are not strange to him. In fact, when you were estranged from Jesus, he stepped to the margin so that you could be brought near, so that you could have this new identity. The king of heaven became a homeless Jewish 
peasant. The prophet Isaiah said he was despised and rejected. He was as one from whom men hide their faces, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Why? So that we who are estranged could be known, could be brought near, so that we who were dead might be made alive, born again, new identity. This is incredibly empowering to us as we talk about Jesus with neighbors who think we're strange because the best thing that ever, that will ever happen to you already has. You have been born again. You are as loved by the Father now as Jesus always has been. That's the best thing that will ever happen to you. So when you talk about Jesus and your neighbor thinks you're weird, like you're in good company because they thought Jesus was weird too. And he sees you and he loves you and has given you this new identity. So Peter invites us to a new posture. He reminds us of our new identity. And lastly, he calls us to a new hope. A new hope. Again, verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the Christian is born again into a living hope, not a dead one, but a living one. And it's a living hope precisely because it is not rooted in ourselves or in this world, but it is rooted in the historical fact of Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead. This is at the core of Christianity. If you're here and you're one of those people who's kind of exploring Christianity, they're like, this is, this is the thing. This is it. Christianity is about Jesus living and dying and rising again from the dead, and not in like a, a sentimental or a metaphorical sense, but in a real bodily sense. He really did die on a Roman cross, and he really was buried, and he really was raised. There was a moment in history when the dead air in Jesus's lungs became breath again. That really happened. And because that really happened, Peter is saying, because Jesus really did rise from the dead, he's saying, you have a living hope. In verse 4, he describes that hope as imperishable. It can never die or be destroyed because Jesus has already secured it by his resurrection. He says it's undefiled. It can't be spoiled by sin, by yours or anyone else's, because it's rooted in Jesus's spotless spiritual resume. And then lastly, he says it's unfading. It's not like money, which becomes less valuable every minute because of inflation. Your money, my money is becoming less valuable every minute that we sit here. And our living hope in Jesus, it cannot be corrupted or diminished. It is a living hope that is immune to the ravages of death and evil and time. And what the resurrected Jesus promises is a fixed future outcome. Because he really did die and because he really did rise again, we may not know what every detail of our lives will look like. But the ultimate outcome of our lives is not in doubt. In Christ, your certain inheritance, your imperishable, undefiled, unfading future is one of inexpressible glory and joy in the presence of God himself in a world without sin or sickness or sorrow or death. This is the ultimate shape of reality. 
Not that we belong to ourselves, but we belong to Jesus. And, th- and this glorious King Jesus will bring about this glorious future. And Paul says in Romans 8 that whatever suffering or pain or loss we endure in this life is not even worth comparing with that glorious future. So while we feel the pressures of life on the margins and we're tempted to dominate or withdraw or conform, Paul says, don't give up. Don't give up. There is a glory waiting for you that will make even the most horrific of suffering now seem irrelevant, like a leaf in the breeze. Because that future glory is so immense. To close us, I'd like to introduce you to a woman named Perpetua. She was a a Christian woman that lived in the North African city of Carthage, the end of the second century, beginning of the third century, um, modern-day Tunisia. And Perpetua was a wealthy, well-educated noblewoman. Her future was bright. She was royalty. She had just given birth to her first first child. Good things were on her horizon. But she lived during a time of intense persecution of Christians under the emperor Severus. In fact, that, that persecution was so intense that Perpetua's own father begged her and then threatened her to renounce her faith in Jesus. But she refused. And because she refused, she and several others were imprisoned and sentenced to death. And in the year 203, she was publicly beheaded for her faith in Jesus. But before she was executed for her faith, uh, Perpetua wrote extensively in her journal about the persecution that she was experiencing and enduring. And at one point, she records in great detail a conversation that she had with her father as he was trying to get her to renounce her faith. And uh, this is what she wrote. While we were still under arrest, my father, out of love for me, was trying to persuade me and shake my resolution. Father, said I, do you see this vase over here? Yes, I do, he said. And I told him, could it be called by any other name than what it is? And he said, no. And I replied, well, so too, I cannot be called by anything other than what I am. I am a Christian. Do you hear it? She's not angry. She's not anxious. Even as she faces brutal resistance. Because she expects that her allegiance to Jesus, that her embracing of this living hope will put her at the margins of even her own family. But she knows who she is. She knows who she is. She knows that God has poured his very life into her and that she is a new creation. And she knows where she's going. She knows that her risen Savior has secured for her a fixed future outcome of inexpressible glory and joy. And this frees her to move out into a hostile world with hope, with courage, with resilience. All of that was true for her, and all of that is true for us. Would you pray with me? Good King Jesus, we thank you that the ultimate shape of reality is not that we are alone in the universe and that we belong to ourselves and no one else, but that we belong to you. And that you are making us and all things new. That you have defeated sin and death. This is such good news for us and for our neighbors. Would you empower us? Would you teach us? 
what it means to invite others to know this. It's in him that we pray. Amen.